So every once in a while I get pregnant with a new Dharma talk. (laughs) You kind of feel it building inside of you gradually. Um, Some time ago I had written on a piece of paper a list of things that I'd like to talk about, Dharma talks, possible Dharma talks. And one of them was uh, Vipassana and devotional practice, Vipassana and devotion. And so I wrote as much as I could, which wasn't too much. It was only like three or four sentences. So I figured it wasn't time to get the Dharma talk on <laughs> Vipassana and devotion. Um, and like I said, it's something that grows inside of you, and you know, gradually you feel more and more pregnant with the talk. And so, um, a couple of days ago, um, I felt about eight months and <laughs> some weeks, like I was really getting there, and it was time to deliver, so... <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> I'd like to begin with a, a wide perspective uh, in talking about different religions and their characteristics. We can divide religions just roughly into, say, three categories, or spiritual practices into three categories. Some religions are religions of faith, for example, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, religions of faith in that a um, belief in God, belief in a higher power is a significant part of that religion. To practice Christianity, usually you have either a very deep love for Jesus and see Jesus as being the Son of God, and therefore have a faith through Jesus to God, a connection with the higher power of God. In Islam, it can be Allah, which is God, through Muhammad, through the prophets. Uh, in Judaism, it's the Messiah. It's, but it's a, it's a belief in God or a higher power via usually some, some human being. Then there are religions, uh, uh, what I would say, religions of wisdom, uh, such as Buddhism and certain schools of Hinduism. There's a, a strong devotional component in many Hindu schools, but like an Advaita Vedanta, the non-dual school of Hinduism, it's very similar to Buddhism. The emphasis upon self-understanding through looking at oneself is more what's emphasized than belief in something outside of yourself. Then there are other religions, say Taoism or Confucianism, which are based upon energy, like Taoism, a lot of it is based upon energy kinds of practices. Uh, Confucianism is philosophy and wisdom in in a conceptual kind of way, not necessarily a lot to do with devotion in the sense of a higher power or God, 
but rather viewing nature and what's around us as more um, how we are connected to everything, how we are a part of everything, interconnected. So, you know, there's just different religions that emphasize different qualities, spiritual qualities. And therefore, the devotion within them is going to be different. In Buddhism, the Buddha once made the statement that even though somebody touches my cloth, that person may not know me. He knows me who knows the Dharma. He who knows the truth he who has seen clearly into his or her true nature understands their true nature, understands the unconditioned. That person knows me. So when he was when he was talking about when he was talking about the truth of the Dharma, he, he was not looking at that as being a personification of himself. When he was Siddhartha, before he was enlightened, and after he became enlightened, the way that people related to him was as a human being, which is what he was. The, the book, Old Path, White Clouds, by Thich Nhat Hanh, is a book about the story of the Buddha's life. It's a beautiful book, well worth reading. And one of the touch, most touching parts of the book is when... Um, the children who were living in a village nearby where the Buddha was enlightened underneath the Bodhi tree, when, he, when they visited him after he was enlightened, they're the ones who gave him the name Buddha. Because the Buddha said to them one morning as they, as they came to visit him, um, he said, I am awake. They said, you look so beautiful, you're so radiant. He said, yes, it's a very special very special morning, I have awakened. And so one of the children said, oh, well, if, you're, if you have awakened, maybe we should call you the Buddha, which means the awakened one. So it's not a name he gave himself. These little children <laughs> gave him the name, very creative. Um, and when sadhus came to visit him when he was teaching when, during his dispensation, they bowed to him, but they didn't bow to him as a god. They bowed to him as a human being who was realized. And that is really what the tradition of, um, is in, in the Buddhist tradition, is that teachers, especially in a Theravada tradition, are not seen as being gurus or deified in any way, but rather they're just human beings who are disciples of the Buddha who have various degrees of realization. I believe it was really the same for Jesus. Aaron tells us that, Aaron has said that he lived during the time of Jesus. And the thing that touched 
Aaron so deeply when he looks back upon those years when he was a follower of Jesus, when he went to Jesus for teaching, and where there are other people who were there also, was that Jesus did not try to stand out in terms of wanting people to look at him in a deified way or as being God, that he wanted to reveal his humanness. And it was the same thing for the Buddha, wanted people to see his humanness as well, because there is a tendency, especially when there is such a powerful being as Buddha or Jesus, or even many of the avatars that have been on earth more recently, that there's a tendency to want to put them more on a pedestal and deify them. And, and in that, when the person reveals their humanness, as they will in either skillful or unskillful ways, people take a real fall. It's very, very difficult. There's been a lot of pain for Westerners with Eastern teachers coming to this country and other Western countries where they have put some of the gurus and masters in such a place that they cannot possibly be human. And when they do something that is unskillful, how extremely painful it is for, for everybody else, for everybody. So to see one's human, to see the humanness, in these teachers, to see that they're not a god is, is, um, is part of this um, understanding in terms of devotional practice and path. People in different religions practice from on different levels, different pers from different perspectives. For example, in Christianity, you might find somebody who goes to church once a year, a once a year, shall we say, or maybe Easter and Christmas. Um, maybe goes to church once a, once a week on Sunday, but does not really imbibe the teachings of Christ, where the person may not be very compassionate, for example. All the way to the other, to the other extreme where somebody has a, a very deep understanding of the Bible and interpretation of it, or is a Christian mystic. So there's a whole range of people and how they practice within one faith. It's the same way in every faith. In Buddhism, there, in, in Southeast Asia, for example, in Thailand, in Burma, in Sri Lanka, a lot of the lay people and a lot of the ordained monks and nuns also, they practice Buddhism in terms of sila, in terms of precepts. For a lay person, it's observing the five precepts of not killing, not stealing, false speech, adultery, intoxicants, taking on intoxicants that, that lead to mindlessness. 
for monks and nuns, it's much more extensive kind of discipline and many more rules. But for a lot of people, that their, their main focus in their, in their religion is upon the sila. Another aspect of it that's very important for them is around giving, what's called dana, generosity. So to, to offer food, for lay people to offer food to the monks and the nuns in the morning, or to offer cloth material, to, um, um, to work in the temple, that kind of thing, that is a, an important part of their path, just as it might be in a Christian church or a, or a Jewish temple where people go to the temple and they serve in different ways that way. And that, that's an important part of how they practice their religion. There are different forms of giving, different forms of generosity. One form of generosity is giving with some sense of wanting to get something back. And in Buddhist countries, I imagine it's that way in, in many Buddhist countries, but for example, in Thailand, sometimes people give with the expectation that they're going to accumulate merit, good merit. And if they accumulate enough good merit, then they'll go to heaven. If they accumulate enough good merit, then next lifetime, and they do believe in rebirth, then they're going to have a good rebirth, and they're going to come into a man's body and be a monk. Because a lot of people feel that the only way that you can be liberated is if you're a monk and you have enough good karma to find a meditation master, practice meditation, and become liberated. That's some of that's some of the some of the belief. Not everybody thinks that way, but a certain population of people. Just as you know, finding some similarities here between what Christians believe and practice as well. It's not very different from that, and that is one level of giving. It's not that there's anything wrong with that. Giving is a way of extending our heart. It's a way of it's a way of, exp of expanding ourselves, of offering what we have to somebody else in, times, in terms of time, in terms of energy, in terms of material resources, whatever it might be. And it's a very, very important practice. It really is a practice of the heart. It was very touching for me when I, went, when I lived in Thailand, how giving and open and hospitable the Thai people were, how they welcomed you into the culture and into their faith and gave you everything that you needed in order to practice. It was very, very touching, especially coming from a place like New York, a culture where there's a lot more greed, a lot more clinging, a lot more fear, a lot more sense of possessiveness, a lot of contracting around what one has. And you know, where that there isn't that kind of real openness and flow of energy in terms of giving so readily. It was a important it was very important for me to experience that in terms of what it the effect that it had on my own heart. And it's really contagious in a way. You really it's it spreads. It's like you want to be the same way. 
that when you're around people who are stingy and contracted you, and they're fearful, you feel the same way. You start to feel fearful and tighten up. Whereas when you're with people who are naturally more open and more giving, that kind of energy touches you and you find yourself feeling a similar kind of way. So any kind of giving and anything that's an extension of the heart is, as Barbara talked about last night in terms of karma, it's going to have a certain kind of effect. It may be skillful, but adhering. Adhering because there's a self. Adhering because there's something that we want in return for what we give. Another kind of giving is skillful action, which is non-adhering karma, where it's coming from a place of wanting to give and wanting to extend ourselves without unconditionally without wanting something for ourselves. And that's a much more difficult kind of giving, just to give open-handedly, unconditionally, without expecting something back for yourself. And we, we always, we talked a little bit about intention, intention this morning. What is our intention behind our various acts and what we do? Well, looking at the intention behind giving can be a very good practice. You know, where are we giving, where there's some attachment, where are we giving from a place of self, of wanting something in return for what we give? And where is that coming from? From what place of fear or grasping and clinging inside of our heart? Or when is the intention much more unconditional in terms of, I have this and I want to share this with you? It's a tremendous, tremendous kind of practice. And it deals a lot with the heart, and deals a lot with faith, and deals a lot with trust. This is, for Barbara and myself, we have continued this tradition of offering the teachings, offering these retreats on a dana basis. There are a number of different reasons why we do that. It enables more people to come to the retreat who may not otherwise be able to come because of financial restrictions. But also, it's a wonderful practice both for the people who come to the retreat to be able to give, to, be, to learn about dana and generosity, and use that as a spiritual practice, as a vehicle for opening the heart and seeing self and non-self and where we can offer to others. It's also extremely good practice for us leading the retreat because... We're dependent upon others for our survival and for meeting our needs and for continuing to do this kind of teaching. Just as when you're a monk and you go on alms round and you have a begging bowl, the, the, the food that's put in your bowl in the morning is what you survive on. You can't eat after 12 o'clock noon. You can eat from sunrise to 12 o'clock noon. You can't eat any food after 12 o'clock noon. You go on alms round one time in the morning at sunrise, and that's the food that you get for the day. If you get enough food, you have enough to feel fulfilled, and it's, it's more pleasant, of course, than going hungry. So it's really a matter of survival. And within a Buddhist country like Thailand, where there's plenty, it's not such a big thing, because there's enough food and there's enough to be shared. But if you, become a, if you go to India and beg as a monk. It's a very, very different kind of thing, where there's not a lot of food, and there's a lot of competition for a lot of food. There's a lot of hungry people. So you really get to look at fear, and you know, where 
and the whole lesson of faith and trust that if you sh- if you should be there doing what you're doing practicing meditation teaching whatever that your needs are going to be met that there'll be food there for you to eat sometimes not so much but something to survive on well it's a little bit the same in living in our culture and what we're doing and people have to pay rent you know, Barbara and I have to pay rent and medical insurance and all those kind of thing and we're dependent upon people's supporting us in the work that we do so it's a real lesson of trust and faith and also we see in ourselves the fear that comes up in that are my needs going to be met so this is in Asian life an Asian way this is a very important kind of practice which we have the opportunity to use as part of our practice here in the West. In terms of service work, for example, um, if some people find that a, a very good way to open the heart and to, to, to learn to develop more faith and trust is by just going out and following their path in a way which is appropriate for them. For example, service is one way where we um, offer our time and our energy to some kind of situation, organization, whatever, that can, that can, um, uh, that can utilize it. And in, in doing that kind of work, it's as Barbara was talking about when she had the choice of going to a retreat and, and getting some dana or um, uh, doing the service work, we face a choice. You know, and where are our actions coming from? From the place of fear, all my needs going to be met, or from a place of much more openness and trust? The Pali word. The Pali is the language that the Buddhist scriptures are written in. The Pali word for faith is sata. I believe it's spelled S-A-T-A-R. I'm not a Pali scholar, but I believe it's, it's, it's uh, pronounced satar. And I recently, well, in 1993, had the opportunity to go back to Thailand to visit um, the monastery that I lived in my teacher died, Ajahn Chah, and he was being cremated. And I hadn't been, the last time I had been to Thailand was like 1980 or 1981. So I'd been out, outside of Asia for 12 years. And when I went back there, it was an incredible ceremony. It took a whole year to prepare the monastery. They built a special chedi where he was cremated. Um, a beautiful, beautiful chedi in which his ashes and some of his remains are still there as a memorial to him. And the ceremony lasted for 10 days. For 10 days, over a million people from around the world came to pay their respects to Ajahn Chah's coffin before they cremated him. And I, I was there for most of the 10 days, and people were coming in droves. They were coming up steps, um, there were maybe 10, 15 people from a village, whatever, would come up the steps. They would bow inside of the, um, in front of the casket, and then they would 
plow out through side doors. And it was a constant stream of people that were coming in and paying their respects. And I was so touched by it. It reminded me of how much faith, how much satar um, the Thai people have in somebody, in a teacher who, who was enlightened. And I really do believe that Ajahn Chah was enlightened. And the faith that for Asian people in their religion, in Buddhism, a lot of it comes from the culture. A lot of it is because they grow up in a Buddhist culture and so they're familiar, they go to schools in which they, in which they um, recite, for example, the Triple Gem, the refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Um, just as we, when we're young, we pledge allegiance to the flag in the morning, when we're, when we, when, uh, the first thing in the morning. It, in, in those Buddhist schools, what they do is they recite certain of the Buddhist teachings and taking refuge in the Triple Gem. So when you walk by a school, you hear Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambhutasa in salutation to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And it's that tradition of it being so much a part of the culture and also the faith in the enlightened teachers the enlightened monks and nuns within the culture that gives people the faith, the faith in Buddha Dharma as a religion, as well as going to the temple and taking the precepts, taking the refuges themselves, of practicing dana, of taking teachings from the monks, and 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 um, to whatever degree they are able to make those teachings and meditation a part of their life. So it's really built in. They approach meditation from the perspective of already having a faith in Buddha and in the Buddhist religion already. They're not necessarily going into the religion with, I want to, into meditation with, I want to get something from this. But it's much more of, well, meditation is a part of Buddha Dharma. My faith is in the Buddha, the teachings, and the Sangha. That's what the Triple Gem is. My faith is in all of that, and meditation is going to help me more deeply understand what these refuges mean. So when we take refuge in the Buddha, it means taking refuge in the enlightened mind. It means taking refuge in our liberation, in our Buddha nature, in the unconditioned, in that which is changeless within ourselves as well as taking refuge in the historical Buddha, who was the master, the fully enlightened one. Taking refuge in the Dharma means taking refuge in the truth, the absolute truth. It means taking refuge in the path, the Eightfold Path that leads to liberation. It means taking refuge in our own individual Dharma, in what is our course in life, and being a householder, and observing the precepts, and raising a family, if it be a monk, and and, and, or a nun and living in a monastic situation, that each of these is our Dharma path. It means taking refuge in the Sangha, which is the community of people who, pra- who practice these teachings to find realization, to find deeper compassion and love within themselves and understanding, and to be able to 
offer that to the world to find deeper peace and harmony in the world, that these are the meaning of the, the Triple Gem and the Three Refuges. So it has a very, very kind of really expansive kind of meaning. So when an Asian goes into meditation, they go into it with a very wide context of lineage and family and history and culture. Well, it's very, very different when Westerners go into meditation. First of all, we're brought up in different religion. We're brought up as Christians or as Jews, or maybe not within any particular religion at all. So when we go into it, we don't have this kind of religious, cultural background in which we're moving into the meditation practice. Mostly, um, the way that Buddhism and Vipassana, or Vipassana has come to America, is without the trappings. It's like, it's a, as a meditation practice. We have Vipassana meditation retreat. And so, when somebody comes to a retreat, they may not really be interested at all in becoming a Buddhist. Like many of you may not be interested in becoming Buddhist. You may be very satisfied with being a Christian, or being a Jew, and practicing Judaism. But you're interested in meditation as a vehicle, as a tool, to help you to more deeply understand yourself, to make your life better, to open your heart to more loving compassion, to develop more tranquility, more self-understanding. That's the reason that you come into it. And not necessarily for a religion, or even from any kind of devotional perspective at all. I mean, this is the first retreat here in North Carolina where we've had an altar. It's the first time that we had, you know, brought pictures and have burned incense and had flowers on an altar. And I've been teaching in North Carolina now for about 10 years. So it's, ta it's taken a while, for that to, a while for that to evolve. And part of it is because it may be very helpful to have this kind of devotional aspect as part of what we do. Not that we want to force it upon people, but rather to show that Vipassana does have more as a broader context than just, it's just a, you know, a secular kind of meditation practice. Buddhism, it appeals very much to Western mind. It appeals to Western mind because it's very rational. It's very scientific. It's easily proved. We've been talking about how causes and conditions give rise to things, how well, the cause, one thing is the cause and condition for the arising of something else, which is the cause and condition for the arising of the next thing, like sense consciousness and perception and feeling and mental formation. This is something that is pretty rationalness and easily proved in terms of just looking at ourselves and, and working with it. Yet, in just coming to a meditation, retreat such as this, without even having had that experience, especially for you people who are here for the first time, that you, there has to be a certain level of faith just to come here. When you're practicing any kind of spiritual practice, there has to be some level of faith just to get started with it. We call this blind faith. 
Okay, you come to a retreat, you don't know what's going to happen here. You don't know what it's going to be like. I mean, you might have thought that this retreat was going to be maybe one or two hours of meditation, maybe an hour in the morning, an hour at night, and the rest of the time maybe spending it in the spa and going for hikes or playing your guitar or doing some of the reading that you haven't done for a while, that kind of thing. I mean, that may be what, you know, with some of the, the mindset that some people come to a retreat. Certainly not, perhaps, the, some of the intensity that we've had in this retreat in terms of the meditation practice. So you come with blind faith, well, this sounds good, and I know that I need something, and I'll try this, and maybe it'll work, and it'll help me. That's blind faith. Then, as we do the practice, and we have more experience with it, we start to move to another level of faith, verified faith, where we see that, ah, yes, this does calm my mind. It does make me clearer. You know, I do, I am able to touch things inside of myself that I know that have been there, but I haven't been able to access. And with this meditation practice, I have much more direct openness to my being, to my body, to my emotions, to my mind, and that I'm learning something from all of this. So we move from blind faith more to a verified kind of faith with the practice. And with that verified faith, then we're coming to, um, you know, our practice begins to deepen as we move along. But I found that for a lot of people who practice Vipassana meditation for some time and do it seriously, that at some point, sometimes people find this is not enough. Just doing the meditation practice, watching my breath, being aware of my body, being aware of my mind, it's not enough. That it feels a little bit dry. Sometimes it feels a little bit stale. A a, um, Christian monk one time came to a retreat that I was leading in Massachusetts, and we were inside the staff room and we were talking. And he was, he was dressed in full Trappist robes, and his, you know, he comes from a tradition where there's a lot of hymns, a lot of ceremony, you know, where it's very, very rich devotionally. And he said to me, "Tell me, what do you have to offset bare bones mindfulness?" <laughs> What do you have to offset the bare-bones mindfulness practice? You're sitting and standing and walking and watching your breath and watching the sensations in your body. You know, it's bare-bones, and, and especially in some ways that it's taught, it is very, very bare-bones. If you get into Theravada and, you know, more very traditional Theravada and tra- teachings and kinds of retreats, it's very, very bare-bones kind of thing. And so... You know, sometimes you find, where is the heart in this? Where does the heart come into this kind of practice? And we we realize that in order for us to continue to use Vipassana meditation as an effective tool for us in our spiritual practice and on our spiritual path, we need to come to the life of the heart at some point. At some point, we need to come to the life of the heart where our path very much includes our heart. And people come to the life in the heart in some different ways. Some people come to it through service. That's how they come to that place in their heart, through giving, as I was talking about before. Sometimes people come to it 
through the inspiration of a teacher, like, for example, Michelle, Barbara, many of my friends in Durham and in Ann Arbor, other places, have met a teacher named Mother Mira, who's an avatar, who's a who's a, a channel for light, for God's light and God's energy. It moves through her very effectively and it touches people in their heart, in their life in positive, very effective kinds of ways. So maybe somebody comes to their, the life of the heart through meeting some kind of a teacher this way, some kind of a master. Or it can come through music, it can come through chanting. That's a, an important part, aspect of my path is my devotional path is, is my chanting. That's the thing that brings me most deeply into my own heart. So it can come in lots of different ways. And I didn't understand this for a long time. This whole devotional thing, devotional path, was really beyond me. I remember, I mean, in, it made sense for me when I was a Buddhist monk that, okay, we take refuge in the Triple Gem and we chant salutation to the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. It's very connected with the meditation. But it's not belief in anything outside of yourself. And then when I came back to America to live after having been in Asia for in 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 Buddhist countries for some time, I stayed with some friends who um, had a guru. The, when the guru, when the gurus who was up here, Nimkroli Baba is a guru to your on on top of. It's a television. On top. <laughs> On top of the TV altar, <laughs> to the left, <laughs> is Nimkali Baba. <laughs> on the other side is Mother Mira, is the, the being of the avatar of light that we were talking about. Well, they, they had, my friends, they had, they were really big disciples of Nimkali Baba. And, they would chant to him and prostrate. It was very devotional. I couldn't understand it. You know, I couldn't understand their relationship with him. It was really, you know, beyond me, because it was a different kind of devotional practice from what I had been used to. It was, you know, where the Buddha was just somebody who was human, and it was not. It was not a guru kind of relationship. Our teacher, even the Buddha, was. We see him as being spiritual friends. It's a Kalyana-Mitra relationship. Kalyana-Mitra means spiritual friend. So my teacher, Ajahn Chah, all the way up to the Buddha, you see them as being your spiritual friends. And it's not a guru kind of relationship. So I had a difficulty with the devotional practice of people in which there was the guru. I didn't understand it. Yet I saw it brought them a lot of joy. It brought them a lot of peace and a lot of understanding, especially a very deep heart connection, opening of the heart. And that was kind of a window for me, I think, that because it allowed me to see that there is a different way to experience spiritual practice in terms of that connection with the heart. And many, for many of us, as we, because we grow up in a Christian culture or a Jewish culture, that's really a part of us to some degree, for many of us anyway. I mean, if you go to church and you have any kind of relationship with Jesus and with God, there is that devotional kind of relationship. It's there to some degree. It was for me. And I like turn my back upon it somewhat because of some of the hypocrisy that I saw within the church, especially during the time of the Vietnam War. When the minister, the pastor of the church said, let's pray for the president of the United States, and the president of the United States was ordering the bombing of Cambodia. 
And I just couldn't reconcile that all in my mind. But that really didn't have so much to do with Jesus and with God, but rather with the church. And so when I got into, with Buddhism, there was a kind of letting go of any God or higher power, and much more a taking refuge in the triple gem, which is really not so very different in terms of when you take refuge in something means that taking refuge means that in a time of need or a time of pain or a time of suffering or even when you're not in, in, in pain or in suffering it's a way of it's a way of taking refuge understanding that's what taking refuge means and that's really not so different from taking refuge in Jesus, which is compassion. Jesus, which is forgiveness. God, which is light, which is energy. It's not very much different from that. It's just the, in, it's more in the cultural context and the, you know, the life of Jesus, the life of Buddha, the different countries and parts of the world that they lived in and the traditions which they grew through. The experience of it on some level, is not that very different. And I found that when I came back to the United States after living in, in, in Thailand and India, that I started to develop a relationship with Jesus and with God, with the Holy Spirit. I didn't invite this in, but our path changes. Our path changes, and all of a sudden, I started developing a relationship with, with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit and with God, and this is I was, I was teaching at Christian centers. I would, for example, lead a meditation retreat at a Catholic center in Ohio where very traditional Catholic people would go. And we would have, like, we would have confession. People would have a choice. They could go for confession with the, the priest who was in, at the retreat center, or they could go for a, a private interview with me about their meditation practice. And if they wanted, they could have communion as part of the meditation retreat. And there were icons there. You know, and all of a sudden, you have this history with this, and it starts to come back to you. And you start to feel that connection, that devotional connection with it, which is part of what happened. And then there was what I would call the crisis of faith. And we all move into this at certain points in our, as our path begins to change, where one thing is feeding us and we feel very strongly connected with it, but then our path begins to change, as all things begin to change. And then we start to open to something else. You know, say, you know, you might be somebody who's coming here from a fairly Christian background, and you come to a meditation retreat, which is a Buddhist form of meditation. That's one kind of opening. But then there's a disincarnate spirit who's part of the teaching. You know, and all of this starts to, you know, you and if you just consider continuing with this kind of thing, you may wind up with what I describe as a crisis of faith in terms of, well, what is my path? What is nurturing and really moving us? Somebody may want to close some... Just, Becky, could you go in and check those windows and doors in the dormitory? Thank you. That... You know, what is my path? What, you know, what is nurturing? And it may not be really clear to us that times where there is that crisis of faith 
it means that we have to just allow ourselves to rest into the moment with what is and again learn to trust and to follow our heart what does our heart say what is our practice right now where is our heart what is the life of our heart right now and those are interesting times very interesting times when we don't really know what's going on as the process of meditation and spiritual awareness continues to deepen, what many people find is they start having a more intimate that as we start to move more deeply into our mind, into our body, into our heart, that at some point we're going to start to see some of the deeper fear that is inside of ourselves. And sometimes people come to retreats for years. We're talking three years, five years, ten years. And sometimes there's a sense of, I am so stuck in my practice. I am so stuck in my life. Nothing seems to be moving here for me. You know, I keep falling asleep all the time when I meditate, or my mind is very agitated and restless, and I really don't know what is going on, what's happening. And then all of a sudden, they'll come into an interview, and they'll be crying, and they'll say, I am terrified. I am just experiencing all of this fear. I didn't know all this fear was here. Somebody just did some body work on me, and I felt like a layer of my skin got removed, and all this fear started arising inside of me. And I feel terrified, and I, and I feel that I, I'm feeling very separate and cut off from everything. I feel really separate and cut off from everything around me because in this fear, I feel very contracted and pulled into myself. And I wonder where God is, where my heart is. I really have a hard time feeling my heart. And... God, my heart, seems really far away. And I really wonder if I'm ever going to have that reconnection with God's light and God's love, God's energy, because I feel so cut off from it right now. And it's a, it's a, it's a difficult time when we start to meet that fear. We've been talking a lot about fear in this retreat. We're talking about fear being behind our grasping, behind our clinging, behind our greed. We're being, we're, we've, been, we've been aware of fear as being behind the reactiveness of mind, our anger and our rage. That behind a lot of these heavier emotions for us lies this fear. And as we begin to open more deeply to our mind and our body and our heart, through this practice, or really any kind of practice in which you are moving deeply into yourself and into your heart, any kind of spiritual practice that has a path with heart in it, is going to, you're going to start to become more in touch with this fear. It's something that I've been getting increasingly in touch with in my own practice. Levels of fear that are much more subtle I mean, I was aware of fear before, but now working with subtle kind of levels of fear that 
And when I'm experiencing some of that fear, I feel so distant from my heart. It used to be really easy for me to do loving-kindness meditations, devotional kind of meditations. I had pretty easy access to my heart, but recently, there's a, you know, I don't really want to do that. I don't really want to do that meditation. You may have noticed I wasn't here last night for the forgiveness meditation. <laughs> that's, the, that's not why I wasn't here. I, was, I wanted to take a walk, get some exercise. But after a day of, of meeting with people, etc. But I have noticed that. You know, I've noticed that there's been a little bit more separation from my heart. And it's because of the intensity of the fear that is there, that's manifesting itself. When we start to move more deeply into pain, when we start to move more deeply into fear, and there's a reactiveness to the intensity of the fear within inside of our heart, and we move away from our heart as because we're afraid of the intensity of the fear and that we may be overwhelmed by it, or the intensity of our anger, of our rage, and that we may be overwhelmed, that we can't handle that level of fear and negativity. We cut ourselves off through separating ourselves from our heart. And in separating ourselves from our heart, we lose that connection with God's light and with God's love. Or, because God is within our heart. Our heart is within God. They're not separate. God is within us, not just something outside of us, but the essence of God is within each of being. And so when we're not able to be in, in, within, with, within our heart and in touch with that essence of God, of the unconditioned, of the changeless, of that absolute love and light within ourself, and there's that separation, we enter into what I call the crisis of doubt. And Thomas Merton once said, True love and prayer are learned in the moment when prayer has become impossible and the heart has turned to stone. That sometimes you get a point in our practice where it's like, I'm not sure I can continue with this anymore. I don't know whether I can go and sit anymore. It's like there's such a level of fear or everything that we've been terrified with and suppressing our whole life seems to be kind of right there on the surface, moving from the subconscious more to the conscious mind. And we know it's right there. And there's a part of us that just wants to keep, to run away from it because we know that it's right there at the surface of our mind. And we know that through deeper introspection and meditation and spiritual inquiry that we're going to be touching that inside of ourselves. And there's a fear of touching it because of the, the fear that it's going to be too intense and overwhelm us. And so we step back from our heart. We, our heart closes. We contract. Our energy contracts when that's happening. And with that, it's like the heart shrivels up. The heart turns to stone. But it's at that point where our heart really start, begins to close off and turn to stone that where there is the beginning, and where we're really in that crisis of, of, of faith, and we really doubt everything. I mean, we doubt 
you know, where we are on our path. We doubt the teachings, we doubt the teachers, we doubt the lineage, we doubt where all of this comes from. You know, we doubt the existence of God at all. Anybody who's in a lot of pain, for example, experiences a lot of this kind of thing. It's a real crisis of doubt and a lot of crisis of faith. It happens at different points in our life, you know, perhaps when we're a teenager, perhaps later on when you know, everything begins to take a turn for more difficult in our life and we're in the middle of a divorce or our parents die or whatever it might be and we're kind of thrown into this place of really not knowing what's going on, a crisis of doubt, a crisis, crisis of faith. I mean, even Jesus, when he was on the cross and he was being crucified, he who had such almost perfect faith had doubt and said, you know, Father, why have you forsaken me while I was on the cross? There was doubt in his mind. And that doubt, I think, begins, comes when things are not clear to us and when our heart closes off and where, where we're not open to the, the light of our path. It's unclear before us because out of our fear, we need to close off and protect ourselves. We protect our heart because we feel so vulnerable that we're going to get hurt. And when you experience a lot of fear in your practice, that's what happens is, is that you're, you feel very extremely vulnerable. You know, and that a lot of things can hurt you. And so you pull in even more to protect yourself. And part of that is because you're accessing your heart more deeply. Actually, what's, what's happening is we're opening our heart more deeply. We're opening our heart more deeply to all that is there, to the joy, to the happiness, to the love, to the compassion, to the forgiveness, and to the fear, and, and to the pain, and, and to the anger, and the rage. All of that. We can't open our hearts just to loving compassion and forgiveness without also opening our heart to fear and pain. It's impossible. They go together. And so as we feel, make ourselves more vulnerable to our heart this way in order to learn more the life of our heart, and we start to experience some of the fear it, it, that's entailed in going deeper into our heart, and we become more vulnerable. We myself to be vulnerable, especially in a society where being vulnerable, being open like that, is very, very threatening. I mean, I've done a lot of teaching in prisons, where going into a prison and, and sitting in a room with, with, with inmates, it took a long time sometimes for an inmate just to be able to close their eyes. Because in prison, you don't close your eyes. If you close your eyes, you get stabbed in the back. So when I would teach in prisons, people would sit there, their eyes were wide open. It's like they weren't closing their eyes. You know? And who was I? They didn't know who I was. I an informant? They didn't know. It took a while to develop trust and faith where they were willing to say, okay, this guy's okay. And this situation is safe enough. There are enough guards in the room that I'm not going to get stabbed in the back that I can even close my eyes. 
You know, this is kind of, and this is a metaphor somewhat to what our society is like. If you work in a situation in a corporation or whatever, and there's not a whole lot of support for meditation and for your spiritual life or being sensitive or opening to the feminine side of yourself. And so you feel very vulnerable in all of that, and there's some fear in it. And so it takes a tremendous amount of trust and also wisdom and, and discriminating mind to know what is the most effective way of opening my heart and, and walking my spiritual path in the particular context of my life. And this is something at some point we can talk a little bit about if you like. I'm just going to talk a little bit more about this opening to our heart, to devotion, which is that the reason that we're here, the reason that we're on earth, is to learn deeper faith and to learn deeper love. We're also here to learn deeper compassion, to, do, to, to learn deeper wisdom. But basically, if we come out of this incarnation, a little bit more loving and having a little bit more faith, we've done real good. We really have. You know, and that's what made me, when, I, when my judgmental mind wanted to judge the, the Thai people, the simple Thai people, well, you're not really practicing Buddha's teaching. You know, you're worshiping the Buddha as a god, or, you know, just coming to the temple and taking the precepts and offering something. It's not enough. But when you look at it, it really is enough. Just to open a heart more deeply to love, to have a little bit more faith, that that's really what it's about in terms of our spiritual path. And in opening to, in opening to faith, in opening to love, as I said, we're also opening to fear, because fear is a distortion of love. And so as what, we, what we're learning to do is opening to fear in its totality, by expanding our awareness into fear. So we expand our awareness into the body. And how does fear, how do we experience fear in our body? We ex expand the awareness of fear. How does fear um, affect our mind in terms of the different kinds of thoughts that we have, in terms of the different mental states that we experience as we move more deeply into fear patterns of attachment or aversion or rage or anger or resentment, whatever it might be blame? How do we experience uh, fear in terms of how it makes, allows us to feel energetically in our heart when we're closing off as we're becoming more fearful? As we begin to open to fear on these different levels of our being, our body, our mind, our heart, as we begin to expand our awareness through mindfulness so that we can create more space around the fear, that we can allow fear to be there, that it's okay to be fearful, that we don't need to be reactive to the fear and to be closing off, that as we do that, we start expanding again. We start to open again, because we're creating more space in the body, in the mind, in the heart, with the state that is there. We do this with every state, with all negative states, as well as with joy. We open our body to joy to happiness. We open our mind to it. We open our heart to it. How does all of this feel? And as we begin to do that, 
as when we're in a contracted state with the fear, when we're feeling very vulnerable and pulled in, we're experiencing fear as personal fear. We're experiencing that pain in our heart as personal pain. Because we're contracted around it, we personalize it. We egofy it, whatever you want to call it. But then as we start to, through our mindfulness, begin to open to the fear and to become more expansive around it, where we're not holding on to it and contracting in it, then gradually it begins to become more a universal pain, a universal fear. It's not my, just my fear, my anger, my pain. We begin to see that every human being has fear. Every human being has it. Just as every human being has love, has compassion, that's a part of our nature. Also, every human being has some level of fear. So, as we begin to expand in our fear, don't need to contract and hide behind it, and begin to open with it, we start to experience universal fear, universal pain. There's a very beautiful Sufi quote that goes, Overcome any bitterness that may have come because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each of us is part of her heart and is therefore endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain. You are called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity. The secret Offering your, offering your heart as a vehicle to transform cosmic suffering into joy. Using our heart, using devotion, using this life of the heart that we discover as part of our spiritual path to transform the suffering that is within us into joy. There's a very beautiful um, poem by Thich Nhat Hanh that goes, Look deeply, I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird when which spring comes arise in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am a child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the alms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true name so I can wake up, and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. That all of this is within us, and that as we find the life of our heart and what devotion means to us, that there is a way of transforming this suffering that we all experience into joy and into love, not just on a personal level, but for the welfare of all beings, because it truly is universal.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.